Lord, we just come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at your word, that you will guide and lead us as we examine what it is you would want, and your Holy Spirit will teach us what it is that we are to see. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up unto a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We're going to stop there, because that's basically a paragraph. So we look at this, and it says, Jesus saw the multitudes. He, he's, remember, he's, he's chosen four disciples so far, and he sees a multitude coming after him because he had been doing miracles and teaching. And it says he went up onto a mountain, and he sat down. And this is something I've shared with you. In the Jewish tradition, the rabbi sits down to speak, and the students and the ones being taught stand. Now, we do it the other way around in our Christian churches in our day and age. Everybody else sits, and the, and the teacher stands. But in, in the Hebrew setting, the rabbi sat, and the other people stood because it was a sign of respect for the teacher. And if we remember when we studied Ezra, they, they, were, they read the word of God and they started at six in the morning and the people stood as they read the entire first five books of the Bible until noon. And then the priest and Ezra and the, and the scribes taught the people. And so you're looking at from six till whenever they ended, probably close to dark. And the people were standing all day in their respect for the leaders. So... This is Jesus sitting down and the disciples come to him and he starts speaking to them. And this is one of the more famous messages that we have. It's many chapters where Jesus is teaching in this lesson. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this word blessed, they like a lot of the newer translations put happy and that is kind of what the word means, but it is so much more than, than happy. Happy is something that you do in relationship to what's going on. You're, I'm happy about the way that I am being treated. Uh, things are going, going good, and I am happy about them. Very few people are ever happy when everything's going wrong in their life. And we have an internal joy that can be there when we're, even when things are going wrong. But happy, this is also can mean make holy or sacred or be successful. It's a much deeper word, which is why I like the King James Version of blessed more than I like the, the definition of the newer translations. And it's not that it's wrong. It's just it's a very happy actually is a very weak translation of the, the Greek word. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are humble, in need of God. 
recognizing their need for God. As opposed to those who think they're hot, hot stuff. You know, look at me. I'm, I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we've all met those people who, who are, you know, you, you should be happy you know me because I have the answers that you are looking for. And God is saying he wants those to be poor in spirit, recognizing that we need him, that we are in need of who he is. And hopefully you never get to the point where you think that God should be happy that he has you on his side. And I've met some Christians that get that way. They, you know, they're just, they're just, uh, they're everything. They're the, you know, if it wasn't for them being in the church, God's church would fall apart. And that's a sad place to be. Because nobody in the church is that important. And pretty much nobody in life is that important. No matter how important you think you are, if you were to die in the next second, life will go on pretty much the way it has always gone on. And we see this even with great leaders. When great leaders die, the country still goes on and they replace that leader. Maybe, they, maybe there's a little downturn for a little while, but it usually comes back as the new person gets, gets experience under their belt. In a business world, very few people are so important to that business that the business will fall apart if, it, if that person dies. Now, if it's a one-person lawyer shop, then yes, his business will fall apart when he dies because there's nobody to take it over. But in any business of any size... It doesn't matter how important you think you are to that business. The business is going to continue if you pass away. And God is saying he needs people to recognize they need him. They need to stay humble. And this is why I tell everybody, I'm loving teaching people in this church and watching people grow. But this could be any pastor that God puts in here can do the same thing. Yes, God's appointed me for this time and this place. But it could be anybody in here doing what I'm doing, ministering to people, teaching people. And I recognize that, and I am thankful that God has let me be the one here to minister and teach. And I take great pleasure in doing it, but I also know that I'm really the nobody. God is the one ministering. His Spirit is the one ministering. All I get to do is explain what it says and let people grow. So, but if you're poor in spirit, you're recognizing you're humble. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this term kingdom of heaven is used by Matthew a whole lot. And what it, it has two meanings at the same time. It has the idea that we are part of the body of Christ and that is being in the kingdom. That is the immediate spiritual kingdom of God that we're in now or kingdom of heaven. And it also has reference to future, the millennial kingdom, when he actually physically reigns and the new heaven and new earth where he will be the actual physical reigning king. So, but we are in the kingdom of God immediately because we are his children and we're brought spiritually into that kingdom. But there is also the future kingdom where he will rule forever and we are made his children. Then he goes on in verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And mourn here means literally to lament, to be so sorrowful that everybody sees it. And that isn't just over the death of, death, death of individuals. It is also over our sinful nature. Because if we can get to the place where we don't look at ourselves as having sinned, we've got a problem. 
because Satan has set us up for knocking us down real quick. And even though we are saints, we can live in victory, we don't. <laughs> it's just a simple truth. We, we don't live in the victory that God has allowed us to live in because usually because we're just not that close to him. We let things get in the way. How many times do we let God, things get in the way from reading God's word, from praying, from spending time with God? It is so easy for these things to happen. And God is saying, when you mourn, when, you, when you're in that place where you really start, you shall be comforted. And this is the wonderful thing about God. He comforts us. And I can tell you, it's easy to start mourning. It's easy to wonder what's going on. I've shared with you many times, you know, it's when I'm at the end of the rope and I don't understand why things are happening to me, I, I grab hold of God's promise and say, God, you've promised this. I don't understand this. I'm, I'm not happy about what's going on. It's very hard. And he brings that comfort saying, you're still my child. I care for you. He comes in and he, and he guides us. And you know, the more we depend on him, the more we can stand up and say, God, I'm going to trust in you because he's already defended us in the past. And this is the wonderful thing about our lives. And I keep telling people over and over, keep track of what God is doing good for you because when things start going bad, you need to look back and say, this is all the good that he's done us. Because Satan loves to make us think that God has left us. Well, you know, God's never done anything for you. This, is, you know, this, this situation is just so bad that you can't get out of it. And then in those times, we need to go, you know what, Satan? I thought that two years ago when this happened and God delivered me. I thought that four years ago when this happened and God delivered me. I thought I was beyond, beyond hope at this point. And God, you know, we need to be able to know and keep in remembrance the good things God has done for us. So that when Satan attacks, we just go, you're a liar. And we know that he's a liar, but how often do we buy into his lies? You know, nobody's ever suffered what you're suffering through. Nobody's ever committed what you did. Nobody's ever going to forgive you. We know he's lying, and yet we buy into it sometimes. You know, well, God has never done anything for you, and this is so bad he can't do it. Satan lies all the time to us. And the sad thing is we buy into his lies. And we don't repent. We don't turn back to God because we're so worried about whatever it might be. And we need to just start understanding Satan is a liar. Believe what God says. Whenever we get into this, God's word is true. And Satan is a liar. Always. He's always true. And Satan is always a liar. Jesus said that when he speaks, he speaks lies because he's the father of lies. Satan lies all the time to us. And we need to be able to know that his voice is, when he speaks, he's lying. You know, the old joke you know, that goes, you know, when so-and-so speaks, you know, uh, how do you know they're you know, lying, their lips are moving? Well, Satan is the literal one that that's true of. When his lips are moving and he speaks, he is lying. Now, there's many people that are following close on his heels, but he is the father of all lies. And when he speaks, he's lying to us. And we need to be able to discern that God is true. Always believe when God says something, it's true. He is always with us. He will never leave us. Even when we don't feel like he's there, he's there. 
And this is something we have to get to the place of we cannot believe our feelings because our feelings oftentimes lie to us. Most people end up getting divorced because they feel like their spouse doesn't love them. And that's a bad place to be because it means you're not trying hard enough to make it work. And our, we get the, our feelings get hurt easily. Our feelings lie to us. We cannot depend on it. We need to stand on the truth. And God says he will comfort us. When we are at our lowest point, God is there to comfort. All we got to do is turn to him. Even if we deserve what we're going through, God still is there to comfort us and take us back when we repent and turn back to him. This is the importance. This is the great lesson of the prodigal son. Took everything, lived a riotous life, hit rock bottom, and then returned back home because he had come to his senses. I love the way it says that he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, you know, he realized how bad a place he was in. The good news is we don't always have to go to the bottom before we come to our senses. We need to come to our senses quickly and come back to God. All right, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is kind of an interesting statement, the meek. Most of the people, when they hear the word meek, think of somebody who has no strength, no, no action. They're just... Uh, they uh, easily, easy, easily manipulated. But in the Bible, when it speaks of meekness, it is strength under control. Okay, somebody is very strong, but it's under control. They're not looking to harm you with their strength. Moses was was called the meekest man there there was, and we know that he had a bad temper because we see it expo exposed quite often, which means that. God called him the meekest man on earth. He must have also been very controlled in most situations as well. And Jesus was considered meek and mild, and it's obvious that he had power. You know, we see him go into the, the temple on at least two occasions to cast out the money changers, and it says he threw the table, you know, you know, flipped the tables over, which meant, you know, he had a whip in one hand and was, you know, with his other hand just throwing the tables, turning the tables over. And these, you got to remember, their tables weren't our lightweight tables that we have today. These were tables, <laughs> okay? If you've ever seen some of the old-fashioned dining room kitchen tables that, that, you know, that weigh 50, 60, 70, 80 pounds, you know, it takes two people to move them. Jesus was flipping these kind of tables over. He was not a weak man but he was not somebody that would be played with. He, was, he grew up as a carpenter, which meant that he knew how to chop down the trees, drag them back to be cut up, and cut them up and move the lumber. He was not a weak individual, but he was controlled. He wasn't somebody that people feared because of it. He was very much in control. And it says, the meek shall inherit this is, again, talking about future in the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth, that we will, help, we will be part of those that rule with him. Verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is a very interesting word. Hunger means to crave ardently with great desire. Okay? 
This is not just talking, well, I'm a little hungry today. This is, I have to have this item. And the thirst literally is, this is an interesting definition, who painfully feel their want of and eagerly long for things by which the spirit is refreshed, supported, and strengthened. Again, a very strong word. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? This is quite a question that we look at for this day. Righteousness is a condition acceptable to God. Do we truly desire to be acceptable to God or do we push the limits on what we could get away with? Most of us push the limits on what we can get away with. For the average person, and I've heard this so many times over the years, how close can I come to this particular sin without crossing the line? How, how intimate and physical can we get with the opposite sex before we've crossed the line into going too far? How close can I come to a lie without lying? How close can I come <laughs> to thinking lustful thoughts without crossing into to it? And our question shouldn't be, how close can I come? But if I'm truly hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's how far can I stay away from this thing? You know, how far can I be away from this? When I was, when I was studying to be a pastor, they, they, they had a rule for pastors that they, or people who even wanted to be a pastor, that especially if they were married, they could not be in a car alone with a woman outside of their wife. And there was good reason for that because you, if you were seen riding around with this woman, there would be all kinds of, well, what's this person in his car for? What are they doing? Where are they going? If you had to do it, one would be in the back and one would be in the front was their rule, but they really preferred it not to happen at all. And their idea was don't even give people a reason to say bad things about you. Appearance of evil. We're not, we're not even supposed to give the appearance of evil. But it, again, it was, it, it was an extreme, but it was saying, let's stay so far away from it that you're not even, there's not even a temptation. There's no, if you're not alone with somebody who's not your wife, then you don't have to have this problem to be worried about. Well, if you're single, it's one thing, but when you're married, it's a whole other story. If you're, if you're married, you don't want to have any kind of accusation, be open to any kind of accusation like that. But we want to stay where we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness. How close to God do I want to be? And this is important for us, that we desire him so much that he is everything to us. This is, this is something that we want to be looking at. And we want to look at our own life and say, how hungry am I? for God and his righteousness. How thirsty am I for his righteousness? I don't know how some of you are, but I, I go to a restaurant sometimes and the food is so salty to me that I spend the next three or four hours sometimes just trying to get the salt taste out of my mouth. But you know, that almost is the way we should be desiring God, you know, that I've got this, I've got this in my heart that in my life it's got to come out. You know, the, the, the taste of the world has got to be washed out and, and moved out of my life. And we greatly desire his righteousness. We greatly desire to seek after him because we can't generate it ourselves. And true righteousness only comes through him. And the reward of it is 
then when we want it, we will be filled. God will give it to us. He will satisfy us. When we seek after him, he doesn't run around and hide, or hide around the next corner. Well, they're almost here. Let me go run to the next corner and hide. He goes, you want it? I'm right here. Have it. The more we want it, the more he's going to give to us. Some people are happy with just a little eyedropper full of righteousness, you know, because they have so much evil in their heart, no desire. They just want to have their fire insurance. I'm going to heaven because I accepted Jesus. But God, I don't really don't want you to change my life or be, in, be with me. And God's saying, I want to give you abundant life. I want to give you abundant blessings. I want to give you abundance of who I am. And the more we want him, the more he's there. And no matter how close we are, we can, we, should, we can get more. But we should always be desiring more of God. There's an old song, Sunday school song, I want more of Jesus, more and more and more. I want more of Jesus than I've ever had before. I want more of his great love, so rich, so full and free. I want more of Jesus, so I'll give him more of me. The whole idea is the more we give him of ourselves and say, God, I want more of you. He says, okay, I'll crucify you and I'll give you more of me. And we can always get more. And you're right. Most of the time we don't think that we need more. God, I am so close to you. I am so happy with where I am. And then we start seeking him and realize about a year later, wow, I know him more than I did before. And then I seek him some more. And I end up with more of him. Now, he wants to give us all of him. But we are the limiting factor in that on what we get. How much do we want? Where, at what point do we become satisfied with who he is and what he's given us and not seek after him? This is something that's very important because we're the limiting factor in this. Uh, God, I am just so happy. I've got so much of you that I'm just very happy. And God says, uh, you're no longer wanting me with great desire. You're no, you're no longer painfully aware that you need more. And then he brings us into a situation that makes us realize we need more. Jesus all the time was saying things that made people leave him because he, was he spoke the truth. Most people say they want to know truth, but they don't really want to hear truth. It truth can sometimes offend. Yeah. To, tell people that, to tell people that they're a sinner and that the sinners go to hell does not really sit well with a lot of people. To, to tell people that you need to be crucified your flesh needs to be crucified and you need to let God live through you is not something most people want to hear. We want to be very careful with our truth. We don't want to be offensive with it, but we also want to tell the truth. And the truth will offend. It always will. Sometimes when you're talking to you know, a friend, you have to tell them the truth even though you know they're not going to like hearing it. But if you truly love them, you want them to hear the truth and to correct their life. And this is, happens in many churches that they don't want to tell the truth and hurt people and lose, especially some pastors don't want to lose the people because they're afraid they'll lose their income and everything. Uh, and not a great place to be it. It's, that's showing that you're not trusting God. Right, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now we've told you the definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. So how do we get mercy from God in abundance? We show mercy to others. We don't give others what they deserve. And this has been a hallmark of Christians for all, all the time. Jesus at one point says that the, if the Roman centurion compels you to walk a mile with his 
his pack, walk, give, him, give him a second mile, you know, just because you're showing him God's mercy. If you have, a, you know, have problems with your brother, make peace with them. All these things that God says to do, be merciful to people. We are to not give people what they deserve as Christians. Now, the government's a different story. The government's, you know, tasked to protect people. But we are to give mercy, not give what they deserve. And God returns our being merciful with mercy ourselves. And it's a, a rule, a law, which they call the law of representation reciprocity you get back what you give and this is something they teach people who deal with the public a lot if you want people to be kind to you 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 try being kind to them first and we all know what it's like if somebody comes up to you and they're angry and yelling and and screaming your first thought is to be angry yell and scream back at them now, if you're well-trained in, in customer service, you may try to calm them down and be a peacemaker. But the human flesh says, you're being mean to me, I'm going to be mean to you. You yelled at me, I'm going to yell at you. you. You were nice to me, I'm going to be nice to you. It happens, and it's a pretty much a general rule in the flesh. You will receive whatever you give to somebody. Now, there's always those who don't, you know, uh, I was a manager in a restaurant and I was very kind to people all the time, but there was always a handful of people that they were just going to be mean and nasty no matter what. No matter what. And you just tried to be as nice as you could to them and then other people would joke at their, at their, at their uh, bad behavior when they, when they walked out the door. They go, I don't know how you put up with that. You know, I would have knocked their block off. I go, well, my job is to be kind to them <laughs> and treat them with kindness. But I, to me, it was also because I was a Christian, it was not just a job to be that way, it was who I was to be that way to people. I tried very much to be kind to people and be merciful to people. But most of this is that we get back what we give, and God says when we're merciful, we'll receive mercy. Not just from him either, it'll be we get mercy from others. And because it's going to be guaranteed that we are going to do things that deserve punishment because that's who we are. We are sinners. Even though we're saints, we still sin. We will deserve punishment in many things that we do. We're not always kind to everybody that we meet, even though we may try to. Some of us try more than others. Some people are still learning that area. We will make mistakes. We will be nasty to people once in a while. Sometimes we'll just be in a bad mood and not be, there, be doing what we're supposed to do because we're not right with God at the moment. And at those times, we want to have God's mercy, and we want to have people be merciful to us. The last thing we want to, well, you're just a mean, nasty person. I don't want to have anything to do with you. No, hopefully we're given enough mercy that people will be merciful to us when we deserve it. And this whole idea of being merciful. How many times do we just say, you know, there's an old saying that I remember when I was growing up that people used to say, and I probably said it myself, I don't get mad, I get even, okay? And I've heard that from many people. That is not following this beatitude to having that attitude. That, that attitude is, I don't get mad, I bless you, <laughs> would be the proper way to, make, to meet this one. But that's, that's just nature. That's new age yeah, but that's biblical as well. I mean, you reap what you sow, yeah. which is the same, the same term. 
and we will reap what we sow. And that's why I would rather be sowing mercy and kindness and love to others and get more of that back in return. 100%? No, you'll never get 100% of it returned to you from other people. There's always, there are always those people who are just not going to be nice and merciful and kind. There are people who are very vindictive, but we're still to love them and be kind to them and give them mercy because this is what I keep saying over and over. God is our defense. He is our defender. If we just back off and let him defend us, life is so much better. And I can tell you that for an absolute fact. When I, when I try to defend myself, I make a big mess out of it every time. If I just back off and say, God, I'm putting them in your hands, number one, I don't have to worry about defending myself with them. And then number two, God has defended me in many ways that I would never have expected. God is our defender. We just need to be merciful to those people and let God deal with them. And he is perfect. He knows how to deal with everything that comes our way and then will deal with it in a perfect way. Verse 8 says, Blessed are they that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure, undefiled, uh, free of corruption desires, free of any mixture of that which is false, innocent, blameless. Those that are pure in heart. And heart, just as it is in the Hebrew, in this case, is the innermost seat of our emotions. That's who we really are. Are we pure in our inner parts? Or do I just look pure? That's what Jesus is going to get more into this. How many people will do the right thing, but they'll do it, and, but in the heart of hearts, they just want to, to do everything that's wrong. That's not what he's talking about here. This is when, he's done a, when God has done a heart sur surgery on us and removed our heart of flesh and put a heart of stone where we truly love people. And this can happen. It really can happen that we can get to the place where we love people even if they're being mean and, and, and despicable and, un, and doing things wrong. Does it take a lot of work to get there? It takes a lot of letting God change us. And that's where God wants to get us to is where we truly love people. And I can tell you, I grew up pretty much the same way. When I was young, we moved around all the time. And I just got to a place where I didn't even want to know people because it's, Next year, I was going to be in a different school anyway, so I never really desired to get to know people. But God, over the years, has taught me to love. Sometimes I wish I didn't love because it's heartbreak. You get your heart broken oftentimes when you love people. When you pour out your life into somebody, you pour out into them and then watch them make bad decisions. To me, that's the, the, the most heartbreaking thing. When I love somebody enough that I'm teaching the word, teaching the word, teaching the word, and then watch bad decisions being made. Now, on the converse side of that is when they make right decisions, it's wonderful. <laughs> and it's like, all right, there we go. You're, 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 you're learning. You're making the right decisions. But this is the problem, and this is why so many pull back away from people is because to love somebody opens you up to be hurt by their doing something that, sh that repulses that love, that rejects that love. And it brings pain to us. So we as humans will quite often push back on them. I don't want to love you because I don't want to feel the pain. And that 
is the vulnerability that God does not want us to go through, be doing. But the pure, those who are seeking after God with a very pure, uncorrupt life, they will get to see God. And the question is, how do you see God? You have to be in his presence to be able to see him. We need to be in his presence. And how do we get there? Through the purity of our, the way we live, the purity of our innermost being. We draw into his presence and we get to see him spiritually now. But again, we will get to live eternally with God in his presence. Can you imagine what that will be like to be in the very presence of God? Yeah. Right now, we just see glimpses and bits and pieces of being in his presence sometimes. And I've shared with you, sometimes when we're in worship, when I've done singing, not so much when I have to lead the singing, but when I get to just be in the, as a participator of the, of the service and get lost in the worship and feel his presence. Every once in a while I'll do it when I'm leading singing, and that's when I start really messing up songs that I really know real well. And that's not a great place when you're the song leader. But you come into his presence, and all for just a minute or two, or even 30 or 40 seconds or so, you're in his presence. And you feel God. I feel him more often when I study, and I get deep into the study, and I'm going, oh, wow, look at how great this is. Oh, God, this is wonderful but to be in his presence and to think that for all of eternity we will actually be in his presence. But the most important thing to remember is we're not basing it on our feelings because we know that he's with us and we need to be sure that he is with us whether we feel him or not. But we want to be very careful because feelings are something that we get wrapped up in feelings. We really do get wrapped up in our feelings. Uh, I really feel like this is good I have had more people come in to say, you know, what should I do? But this is what I feel. And you're going, well, it's not scriptural. It's not biblical. Well, I've been there. I've been in, that, in God's presence and everything. And it's a wonderful place to be. And it's a wonderful experience. But we want to be careful that we don't get so wrapped up in the experience. Because a lot of times, if you get wrapped up in the experience, you keep chasing after the experience to have it again. And God's saying, no, just keep following after me. And you'll get the experience again. And by, but not by chasing after the experience. And we want to be very careful about that because our feelings and experiences are not what we are basing our relationship with God on. We're basing our relationship with God on the truth of his word. And God is always with us. Whether we feel him or not, he is with us. He is always there guiding and leading us. Whether we are experiencing, uh, feeling it or not, he is there. He died for our sins whether we feel like he did or not. He has saved us for eternity, whether we feel like it or not. Okay? So we want to be very careful because so many times we go chasing after experiences and feelings. And that can, that can sink your life really quick. It's uh, kind of like some of the sin. You know, the People keep chasing after the, the pleasure they had in their sin that one time, and they keep trying it over and over and over, so maybe they'll get back to that, that first feeling. And it takes our focus off God to an experience. And once we take our focus off God, we'll never experience his presence again because we're looking for the wrong thing. And we're looking for the experience and not God. So we want to be careful with that. 
And it says, the pure in heart shall see God. They shall, and that pureness is deep down inside us, and it's changed through the word of God. All right, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Most people, when they read this verse, think of peacemakers as only somebody who stops conflicts and wars. Okay, and that's part of this, this idea. But the word here in Greek is somebody who brings about peace. And the definition for peace, and I've given you this before, the word in Hebrew is irini, and it means the safe, the, the tranquil state of a soul assured of his, its salvation through Christ, and so fearing nothing from God, and content with his earthly lot, whatsoever sort it be. Okay, we've given this definition before. True peace. I'm, I'm right with God. Start is the first part. Why? Because I've confessed my sins, and he's come into my heart. I am right with God. I'm not worried about hell. And because I'm not fearing, any, I'm not fearing anything from God, but I'm also, the second part of that is I'm content with whatever God sends my way. This is what Paul said, I have learned to be content with much or in, or in little. I have learned to be content. Are we content with whatever God allows to come our way? And this is something that's critical for us. If we're really gonna be at peace, we need to be content. That does not mean we try, don't try to, to better our situation as long as I'm doing it with the right motive. If I'm seeking after wealth and that's my whole focus because I don't want to be poor, I'm not content and I'm not following God. But there are times when I don't have very much and I'm still content because God meets my needs. There have been times when I've had quite a bit because I used to make a lot of good bit of money. Our whole world now is based upon not being content. This is, this is the whole purpose of our world. The entire advertising industry is designed to make you discontent with where you're at so you will buy their product that all of a sudden you need because they told you you were discontent and that you needed it. There's a whole multi-billion dollar industry or trillion dollar industry trying to make us discontent with our circumstances. We need to be able to say, God, I just want to be content with what you've given me. Not passive, not, not uh, just, you know, well, I'm going to just stay here because I'm going to sit in my, my easy chair until God dumps the money over my head and makes things better. No, that won't happen. He, he wants us to go out and work. He wants us to go out and earn a living. He wants us to try to better our circumstances. But we need to be content. We need to say, God, wherever state I'm in, it's where you want me. And not strive. Because people who are striving for wealth are never content with what they get. And there are many people that are poor that are not content because they always want to get something else. There are rich people that always want more. There's always something, if we're not careful, 
no matter where we are on the spectrum, there's always somebody who has something that we want if we're not content. And we have that covetousness that I've got to have this because somebody else has it or, or I've got to have this because it's better than what I've got. And we have this whole system that is built in this world. And this world now in, that we live in is built on spending more money than you have because you just have to have the newest, greatest, best of what's out there. And we have an industry that's built up where billions and trillions of dollars in credit are extended to people because they just are discontent. We will never be at peace if we're not content with where we're at because we'll always want more or less. There are a handful of people who want less than what they've got because they've found that their stuff has taken, taken control of them. And there's a lot of people that have that problem, but they're still not content. And we need to get to the place where we are content with whatever God has sent our way. And he says, those who do that shall be called the children of God. As we are bringing peace into people's lives, and this is literally peace maker, I would substitute the word soul winning. Those who are giving the gospel and bringing souls to God because they're going to be called the children of God. Why? Because what is true peace? It's bringing them to God, bringing salvation to their, to their life, making ultimate and true peace, not just national peace, which this verse is so much more than national peace, or even internal peace amongst friends. It's much deeper than this. This is bringing them to God, bringing them absolute true peace, that tranquil state where they're in, in one with God and they're making decisions with God. Verse 10 says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. All right, persecution. Are we thankful when we're persecuted? Most people are not. But you know... God says that when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, and that's a key part of here. You know, I know people who, I've heard one guy say, you know, say I'm being persecuted. Well, what did you do? Well, I got fired. Why did you get fired? Well, I was witnessing. Were you supposed to be witnessing on the job? You know, no, well, then you weren't persecuted. You were given what you deserve. But true persecution is when you're doing right and still having a hard time being given to you. The apostles preached the gospel of Christ and were punished for it. All they did was tell people about Jesus, even though the government told them not to. That's persecution. And it's very important for us to understand when we are out there preaching the gospel, people aren't going to like it. The world is not going to like hearing the gospel message. Number one, they don't understand it. Okay, It doesn't make sense to them. But they can get very violent sometimes about it when you're, when you're preaching the gospel. And if you've ever done any street evangelism, you know what it's like to have people get back at your face and yell at you and all these other things. But when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, we're gaining the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told us the world's going to hate us. The world hated him, the world will hate us. And in America, we've been spoiled because we haven't had that kind of hatred and, and persecution sent our way for the most part as Christians. We want to be able to see, this is going to change though in the, in the very near future probably, that we're going to be under persecution even in America. There, and just so we keep it in perspective, right now in this world, millions of Christians are being martyred every year. Every year, 
in our day and age, there are places where to be a Christian means that you're going to die within six months because it's that violent. And God is moving in those places in mighty ways. So when will this happen in, this, in America? I don't know. It's, it's starting, to, starting to show its face. I don't know how long it'll be physical abuse and, and murders for being a Christian, but it's, it's around the corner. And God promised that our country started under godly principles, so we haven't had to face it as much as many places. But it, like I say, in many places in the world, people are going to die for their, for their beliefs and be able and, and suffer. Verse 11 says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Again, this is getting kind of interesting when, you know, these first ones were kind of nice, okay? I'm being nice. People are going to be nice to me. Here he says, Blessed, holy, sanctified, happy are you when men shall revile. And that's a very strong word. That is to basically curse you and to to uh, say bad things about you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. The word evil here is poneros, which literally means uh, to charge with, with uh, evil. And it has the idea of... Uh, Bad, uh, being a bad, uh, let's see, a mischief maker. That's the word I'm looking for, mischief maker. Somebody who purposely tries to cause trouble. Have you ever known mischief makers? You know, they just, they like to try to needle people. They like to try to just drive wedges between people. Uh, they delight in injuring people. They delight in doing evil to others. And this is what it says that, they would say all manner of evil against you. And again, it says falsely, something you don't deserve. And this was said oftentimes of the Christians. Nero blamed the Christians for burning down Rome when it was he that wanted to burn it down so he could rebuild it in his own, in the image that he had for it. But he blamed the Christians. And this happened all through history many times that Christians were blamed for things. And even though it never never made sense sometimes, they get blamed. Christians even today get blamed. Have you ever heard it said here that Christians are dangerous? Our thoughts are dangerous. The way Christians want to have everybody live is dangerous. We're hearing it more and more. And we heard it during this election cycle from different candidates who said, well, those, those conservative Christians out there, they're dangerous. You know, if, you, if we let them win, their, their beliefs are going to... to overwhelm us and and I've even heard people heard different people in the government saying that you know Christians they're more dangerous than the Muslims you know, and it, it is kind of a bizarre thing but it is this verse right here when they say evil things against us verse 11 yeah you know, and it's undeserved and they persecute and they revile and then what does he say to do in verse 12? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. <laughs> They're coming after us, and what do we do? We rejoice and we get exceedingly glad. <laughs> doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's what God says. And how many times does God tell us to do things that doesn't seem to make sense from the earthly perspective? It's so often. 
And it says, so great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Rejoice and be glad because you've got a reward. And reward here literally is wage. God is going to pay our wages that we've earned here on earth by being obedient. It's not just him giving us out of our, the goodness of his heart. And this is something to really keep in mind. And I can't remember which pastor I heard today say this. I, I think it was uh, McGee. That everybody in heaven is not going to be treated the same way and have the same stuff. Because certain people have earned rewards in this world. And those rewards go to heaven. So there, and I've said this many times myself, I had this picture of heaven of having some people who have just gotten into heaven because of grace, having the studio apartment in the basement of, of, the, of God's, God's uh, uh, mansions. And those that have done greater things will get closer and closer to the penthouse suite. You know, you start with the, the studio and you know how those nice apartments work. You start down with the little inexpensive places and the higher you up you go the more you have a floor or or the penthouse view and everything and I have this picture that God has got the same plan for us you're going to have those who you know a, a studio in heaven is better than being in hell but for all of eternity you've got a studio <laughs> as opposed to the penthouse at the very top floor now I don't think anybody that I know is going to that I know personally has a penthouse but <laughs> You never know because God has a different way of looking at things than we do. And I've said it over and over. The prayer warrior who nobody knows what they've done may have more rewards than anybody else that stands out in front of a church and, and looks like they've got everything all together. That prayer warrior is the backbone of the church and may have so many more rewards. The pastor who's standing up preaching and teaching and everybody looks at, oh, well, this person's so wonderful may have very few rewards because they may not be using everything that God told them to do, and they may have a lot of hidden stuff in their life that needs to be worked out. So we can't look and say, this person deserves, you know, look at this, how great this person is. And this person, now they don't do anything. They may be doing more for the kingdom than you're ever aware of. Yeah, and it could be, you're right, it could be cleaning the bathroom. It could be doing the, doing the mechanical work on fixing the church. You never know what it is. They're doing, if you're using 100% of what God's asked you to do, your rewards will be great. Because he's not asking people to be like somebody else. He's just going to say, I gave you this, what did you do with it? And you say, God, I used it to the best of my ability 100% of my time. And no, nobody's ever going to be able to say 100% of our time. But, but God, I used it. Most of the time I was using what you gave me. And God's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, you gave me 10 gifts and I used three of them. God's going to say, well, why didn't you use the other seven? <laughs> okay, and this is why we need to be aware it is not what we think is important that it, to show what is important because it'll be only what God uses and, and how he touches our lives because he's got each person with a personalized plan. And we never want to look at our life and say, well, I just don't measure up to so-and-so. Well, you're not supposed to measure up to so-and-so. You're supposed to do what God has asked you to do. And don't compare yourself to other people because God isn't comparing you to them. He's got a personalized plan for you. And if you live up to his plan, you're going to be greatly rewarded.
You're going to have the penthouse view, view because you used your gifts that he gave you to use. And we can destroy ourselves by comparing ourselves to one another. Oh, God, I'm just not... I'm just not like so-and-so. I'm just not being used by you, so I'm going to quit. And God's saying, well, you, were, you were doing so well until you compared yourself. You were, you were using all your skills and, and what I gave you, and then you compared yourself and said you weren't good enough. And, you, well, we can disappoint ourselves quite easily. But we want to be able to rejoice and know that, we have, that we're in good company. When we're being attacked by Satan and others, we're in good company. It was done to the prophets. And we've studied some of the prophets, and I've shared with you how many of the prophets had problems. Jeremiah kept getting thrown into prison every time he opened his mouth. You know, and at one point he said, God, I'm not going to speak for you anymore because it's nothing but trouble. And then the next verse is, my, the, your words burned in my mouth, and I couldn't help but speak. And Hebrews were told that Isaiah was stuffed in a log and sawn in half. Daniel, thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego went into the fiery furnace. No, those two, those ones all came out. God, but God didn't always deliver his servants. Many of them died serving him in, in hard and, and cruel ways. All the disciples, except for John, died a martyr's death. And it wasn't from lack of trying that John didn't die. It's just that God said, I'm not going to let you die. They tried poisoning them. They tried burning them in oil. They put them in an insane asylum, criminally insane asylum, basically hoping that the inmates would, would kill him. And God delivered him. All the rest of them died violent deaths. And we, if we are being persecuted, are in good company. We need to take comfort in that. We're going to stop here and, and uh, we're going to close in prayer. Yep. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you guide us and lead us as we go out about our business this week. Help us to have the opportunity to share the gospel with each other and protect us for each of the activities we do. Lord, if there's anybody that listens to this that doesn't know you, that you will get hold of their heart, that they will confess they're a sinner and that, you, that they deserve punishment, that they will repent of their sins and ask you to come into your heart and be your child and follow you. In your son's precious name, amen.